All right, we're back once again with the Brain Trust Podcast. My name is Adam Vass, and I'm a tabletop game designer in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And my name is Willie Obst. I'm a tabletop game designer in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Adam, what's up? Just designing games. Designing uh, you know. a game. <laughs> Living the lifestyle, walking the walk, and talking the talk. <laughs> I love walking the tabletop walk. <laughs> kind of got a big Ikea-style bag with heavy books in it. Very boxy. A bag with corners. Yeah. I I have one of these super bags that I take to the grocery store because no more plastic bags in Toronto. And uh, I actually got heckled at the store for using it and Being taking a nerd? too long like in the line because it's nerdy or because no <laughs> yeah because because it said fantasy flight on it <laughs> no um because i don't know this person was just like uh i i go to the grocery store in the middle of the day that's one of my luxuries mm-hmm. and i'm i'm hitting it's hitting differently there i am often the youngest person by far at the grocery store I know what's up, and I walk at the grocery store appropriate pace. I don't know. what What's your grocery store arrival <laughs> target uh, window? Honestly, um, because Alex uses it for work, we get our groceries delivered now pretty often. Sick. That's and that sick. is a luxury. Yeah. Because um, I used to be when, – when I lived by myself, I would go to the grocery store – with headphones on at like three in the afternoon, like nice, go like be isolated as far as as I can, uh, and just browse. Just I'm just browsing, just window shopping. Read some labels, check out what's new in the cereal aisle. Uh, take it casual. Now it's <laughs> we're here for two things that we forgot to put on the delivery order. We're gonna if we're here longer than ten minutes, we have failed. I have a perfectly planned route uh, through the grocery store that I take now, and there are lots of older people who this might be their only time out of the house during this week, and I'm simply knocking them down on the ground. (laughs) I'm simply bashing my cart. Slow it down, young one. I am... I am using the double wide fuck. I've never seen grocery carts this big until I went to like these grocery stores in Canada. It's okay. You're matching a grocery cart. It's a big bucket, right? It's like a big thing. Yeah. Like it's a bed and these ones here, it's double decker. So you've got this top like tray and then offset. You've got a lower tray. That's even longer. So you could, you could pick up a lot of shit from the grocery store, and I am tooling this thing around like I'm DK in Tokyo Drift, like <laughs> full inertial drifting around to get the gluten-free stuff I need. Um, that makes more sense because I think a lot of groceries are not necessarily as tall as the the cart allows. <laughs> There's a lot of vertical space lost when packing a grocery cart. How do you min-max the grocery haul? Okay, so uh, when I'm doing my grocery haul, I put my jacket and my backpack into the bottom tray. Nice. So I'm just, I'm I'm 
taking a load off, okay? And then if I fill up beyond the the top tray, I know that something financial is happening. <laughs> this trip in the grocery store. But um yeah. That's the grocery store. Just a common wellspring for us here on the Brain Trust podcast. I was going to say so is the board game bag. This is a board theme that we've bag. revisited. It's just I just it's such a thing um but when you're at a convention i haven't been in person to a convention well i went to breakout con this year which was great i did see the board game bag <laughs> the super duper reinforced indestructible will be around in 400 years style board game bag i'm bummed because i was ready to go to conventions this year and touring has made it so that i can't go to any of them you you just have normal cool bags that you use on music tours. Yeah, but they hurt. Like you, they, you know, you they have say line six on them. You have the thirteen. <laughs> you get that thirteen inch square tote bag, the natural color. Um, yeah, the thin straps that dig into your your clavicle. That's... I love that. I love bursting blood vessels on my shoulders. <laughs> just carrying shit around. Yeah. Um, maybe there needs to be like a some sort of general consensus on on bag shape and size that could be more utilitarian yeah because it is the wilderness out there like everyone is reinventing the shoulder bag all the time and no it's never getting better they're never solving (laughs) it well i'm one of these days i'm going to be a cart person where i'm i'm bringing a cart to the grocery store because it's close enough that i can walk and then I got this little cart. You were like a little trolley thing? Yeah. Yeah, though. I think that might be the answer. That might be the move. Start selling little knickknacks out of there. Uh, so, as you know, this is a podcast about <laughs> designing tabletop RPGs. <laughs> you know, art imitates life, and we have to observe life to make the good games. Oh, no doubt. It's really important. You got to keep it open. I was on a panel and someone said, how do you come up with game ideas? And I tried not to say, that's the bad question. Don't ask that. It is, you never turn it off. You just keep your brain open, try and get a lot of stuff. Sometimes it's the grocery store. For example, I made a game about a board game bag and being made fun of in the grocery store line based on my experience. (laughs) So we have uh, a question we want to talk about on the Brain Trust podcast, which is why are we doing this podcast? It is from Adam Bell. The question is, how do we connect back with works in progress that we haven't touched in weeks, months, or maybe even years? How do you keep the creative spark alive? And how do you revive it if it, if it has gone out and you want to re-engage? Um, I think we probably both have examples from like our own work of this kind of stuff. But I wonder if you had anything recently about this. I'm actually particularly interested in your answers because my uh, tendency is to, I don't really leave works in progress. I obsess over a design until it's done and then I publish it immediately. And that tends to be in smaller form like the stuff that i release through patreon and zines and like i almost just call them disposable projects but like they are in so far as i just need them to get out of my brain yeah and so i go all in until it's done and then i kind of don't revisit it which 
a lot of those games I don't think they need revisiting. Sometimes I learn in the process of making them like something I would want to revisit or um, sometimes a project will just sort of like have the audience dictate what um, is interesting about it and I can like revisit those things. But generally they are, they exist to keep my uh, just like brain fluid <laughs> moving. Yeah. Um, so I don't really often have, and I'm not sure I even, I'm not sure I very much have revisited a game that I abandoned because I don't tend to, and not abandon, but you know, like put on the shelf. Yeah, put down. Because um, I just don't often do that. So, but I know that that is a thing that is almost like core to your current yeah. <laughs> design process. It is necessary. Like part of it is intentionally putting something away and then coming back. There is this advice that Taika Waititi has on screenwriting, which is he will pump out a script or a story and then uh, throw it away and then in several weeks write it again from memory because you have this obstacle in the way of writing something where it's all set down and it feels a lot more solidified than it might have been otherwise. And if you're writing it from memory, you're only remembering the stuff that interests you the most. And then you're forming the story and focusing it around those touch points that you have. And that is a pretty good way to treat coming back to a project. Um, say you did some preliminary design. Maybe you ran a play test and you were into it and it was just at the wrong time or something came up and you have to get back there. How do you you know, check back in with yourself in the past. Um, I imagine that if you're asking this question or thinking about this, you are interested in that thing for some reason. So starting back at the trying not to continue the exact train of thought your design was on at that point in time is, you know, that's impossible here. You want to find the spirit of the thing that you're making and what you're specifically interested in. And I've got a lot of <laughs> examples of this because part of my process is making something, coming up with an idea, putting it away, maybe after a play test or something, while I produce something else, and then coming back, checking back in with myself, and seeing what I liked, what I, what things that might not make sense to me at this point, um, and I think that's a pretty common thing where you can go check back into a doc, even a doc you've been working on and you see something you wrote two weeks ago and you're like, I don't really know what that that's about. Like that doesn't feel like me in this, this moment in this game. Um, something that's really good in general for your work is to make a design goals document and have that just be a part of your Scrivener file or Google docs folder that you can check back in during the process and say like, okay, I wanted this game to be about uh, what it's like being a skeleton that simply falls apart, and I want the funny xylophone stuff, and I want <laughs> aging to be a part of the game or whatever. And you then write, and then you go back and check, like, oh, is this up to date with what I want this game to be about? Do I change the content of the game, or do I change my goals because they've evolved? And 
that's something you can do right now for all your whips, which I really recommend. I think with that comes something even more basic that I know you do and you've uh, kind of encouraged, you've encouraged me to do it passively is make new Google doc, like stop writing in the same Google doc. Oh yeah. That's such a good hack. Number one, like I've noticed just in working on 1978 that I think I have three Google docs now that are all kind of like the evolution of man, you know, like, Yes. <laughs> I have yeah. pure monkey mode and I'm working my way to standing up. Um, but that requires rewriting. It requires reorganizing thoughts and sections. Um, it is the sort of physical manifestation, I guess, digital manifestation of that progress of thought and that refinement of an idea is like being able to look at them and rather than delete this paragraph and rewrite it in the same Google Doc, you're going to you inevitably are going to either delete something that you wish you could reference or you're going to leave something that you wish you had deleted or whatever, yeah. like start clean slate it. You got a clean slate. Yeah. That's, that's such a good point. I mean, it's like, that's why you do sketches before you start rendering. Like, because you can't just go into writing finished rules. It's so much easier if you create some garbage that you know is going away later and it's some classic advice from Will March of the Design Games podcast and a bunch of other stuff um, that never delete anything. Like, never make something permanently go away. Save it in some way. Uh, click, make copy, and then just date the new doc for what your changes are going to be, if it's something big. Work with track changes on... Um, make a new document each time you have a new play test something i do um this is like part of my play testing practice at this point which is when i have a play test coming up i make a doc in my scrivener thing that's like here are my notes for the play test here's what i want to test here's what i'm thinking about here's some new rules i want to put in and then i make another doc that's like here's the notes i'm taking during the play test here's the time we started playing the time we ended playing and here's the roses and thorns everyone gave and then i have a third doc which is like here are the changes i'm gonna make based on that my stray thoughts since the time i had the play test to when i'm sitting down and writing now because that that's when the design is happening and then you can update the game do what you need however sophisticated you want this to be you can get really freaky and complicated like me or you can just say i'm just making a new google doc um so i can feel free to destroy like giving you the license to make <laughs> your document be basically one of those rooms where you go and <laughs> break windows and shit <laughs> like that's really freeing um and if you keep your versions, it never goes away. And that's such a good thing to do. God, that's just a good writing thing to do. For sure. And I've noticed too, like, it was interesting the way that my docs have evolved where I had a pitch doc, which was like basically for me and Logan to sketch ideas. And then I would develop some of those ideas into rules like language. And then... I needed to make something for playtesters, so that had to be separate than the pitch doc. Um, and then I was using that to write pit, like uh, playtester feedback at the bottom, 
more as like a note to self that I could then reference when I went to write the actual rules, but then became aware that the other playtesters could read that feedback and like see, oh, this thing needs a bandaid or this thing like, which is kind of interesting because if someone goes in and says like, oh, we had this issue, but it looks like that's kind of a more pervasive thing that other people have mentioned, like it's kind of validating in a way. And it's valid. Yeah, it kind of stops the bystander effect in playtesting. And it also helps you as a designer record recognize like this is not an outlier issue. This is a more persistent issue that's going to need addressing. So um, the way that my docs change purpose and then it becomes clear that they need to evolve into a new doc has been an interesting process for me, um, especially with this game. And it's like how it's changed from theory to a real game. Um because with zines and stuff, I don't let something cook that long. It goes yeah. it goes from theory to print pretty quick. So, which is not a bad thing. I think that's again kind of the function of those games for me as a designer. And uh, yeah, totally. I think that's something that people can and should be doing for like itch jams and like other just like creative exercises. See what the most streamlined version of your process can be where you don't get caught up on details and you don't necessarily have to refine everything into gold and just to like play with your mind. Um, I think that's a really valuable thing, but it comes back into a, a thing that we all often butt up against, which is what is like the nature of this as a product? What is the form that this is going out right. into a public forum? Is it a thought experiment? Is it, a sketch that's like playable fun is this something that i expect to be like a tentpole for my company or for my publishing yeah and i'm I'm definitely on that side where like i'm at a point where i can only justify making the tentpoles and my process has evolved around that and so back to this original concept of like where does the whip come into play here because i am I'm kind of unable to write a game that's not 50 to 100 pages long anymore. Um, just out of like, because I have trained myself to do that. Um, it means that like, so the the big example I would point to is like Big Grave, Fashion Fantasy, is a game that I first play tested three moves ago. <laughs> <laughs> like in my life. Before um, the brain trust began. Pre-brain trust. And I... Yeah, I'm sorry, memory lane. I'm just makes me think about how all my games start as, or the the games I was designing at that time, I used a system, like a system I was interested in playing, and then I would replace piece by piece other things until it was a different game. And so I was like, Ship Ship of of Theseus. Theseus. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) The game design of Theseus. This is a Brain Trust Greatest Hits episode. (laughs) Seriously. We talked about Guns N' Roses last week. um, (laughs) Just wild alt rock radio music references but on that level i couldn't i don't know that person anymore but i have the things that they wrote interesting (laughs) i have all their diaries um and so there are some things that i crystallized so well in that um those initial play tests that are still in the game now. And there are other things that are just so far away and not a part of it. And if you have this strong crystallization that 
you think like, oh, this work in progress, here are the three things that I think are cool about it. You know, something that should probably be important in a whip that you pick back up is like, what is the core narrative thing happening, whether that's what the players are doing or what the game's about or whatever. And it's the thing that you are truly interested in exploring. If it's a mechanic, flesh out the mechanic and then just put it in your secret dragon's horde of mechanics to pull back out to use for something. Because as game designers, we're going to make so many mechanics that are stupid and interesting like at the same time. And they just need to be in the exact right concept for them to be perfect in any other context they will be stupid and interesting and yeah with with big grave it was interesting because it has taken so many different uh not shapes but textures of play and i'm on the one that it's going to be now and it's a process of having put it down and picked it up so many times i have turned a piece of coal into a diamond or whatever just based on the amount of time thinking about it, the simplification and distillation of ideas into its most elemental things that keep me coming back. So I know that I am really interested in it. So people like me are interested in it. So that's why I'm going to work on it. Yeah. I think that's kind of the core thing for me is, is this something that I care about enough to make into reality? And if the answer is yes, then like I'm good to go because there's enough weirdos who follow me that like the stuff that I make that I don't have to find some external validation or like external justification to make it. Um, because, and that was something that I learned only just a couple years ago, but has really like sharpened my design goals and ways that I do things is like. I'm going to make the things that I care about the most and then people will find it um, that are like me versus me trying to concede and make things that I think will be more well-received or more utilitarian or whatever. Um, I think a lot of artists have that issue um, in their process and it's not always that simple of an answer. I remember like when I used to sell prints and uh, was more of just like a, visual artist for hire um it very over time kind of faded into like selling fan art because that was something that people would buy and it would be able to sustain like things that i wanted to make on my own um but it didn't feel right and didn't feel good so i just kind of shut the whole thing down Mm -hmm. um and i do fear that day coming (laughs) someday with games of just like this doesn't feel right anymore, so I'm not going to do it anymore. But um, that is something that's like important to just keep in mind, like staying true to the things that you want to make and why you want to make them. Like you mentioned yeah. earlier, writing down just like what your design goals are. Um, think of it not even just in project-based, but in like a self-based way of like, what are my goals as a game designer? Not just like, what are the goals of this game? Yeah, I like that. And it's kind of beyond a conversation of, am I selling out? Am I true to myself? It's like, you're changing as a person and you shouldn't be making art that you don't feel you should be making. Like, 
and always searching for the reason and and reiterating to yourself what the reason is and having that be an open dialogue instead of freezing it in time and then checking back in months or years later and being like um i don't want to be doing this i don't (laughs) want to be writing these licensed games or i don't want to be making dungeons or i don't want to be making these story games it's not working it can really easily be a frog in boiling water situation though like definitely you have to be constantly asking yourself or more frequently asking yourself those questions um it's funny because you mentioning that like dungeons and fantasy stuff specifically is what is what like grabbed my attention is like hey bud this ain't us (laughs) we don't care we don't like lord of the rings (laughs) um so like this isn't going to be the well from which we drink like this isn't it's not going to be satisfying um and then i think you see me take a harder turn a couple years ago with stuff like necronautilus and ether operations of just being like fully gonzo weird stuff and um that's just what i want to make full time uh and they're punctuated by like other projects and things that I like, like a lot of genre emulation, a lot of sad and like artsy kind of games too, because you don't have to be one thing, but like, uh, I guess it's just important to know, like you, you, in addition to the fact that you don't have to be one thing, it's like, you don't have to be any thing. <laughs> you can yeah. just do things as long as you care about them. Yeah, and as long as you do them in, like, an honest way to yourself, I think that's what's important about, like, keeping that spark there or something that you can return to. You don't have to put yourself inside of this, like, synthetic headspace to make something. If you have put it down and now you have some free time a few months later, what are you going to do? It's like, this kind of only was in conversation when people were... (laughs) watching this Netflix show that was coming out or something like that, or I'm not interested in this anymore because something happened and I did. I just don't like this. Um, yeah. Um, we, we actually got some cool questions in the brain trust about something similar. So maybe we come back from a break and talk about it. Sounds great. We're back on the Brain Trust podcast. We have another light breaking question in the BT from Paul H saying, What's your thought process when trying to connect mechanic to theme and the same for theme with mechanic or a general discussion of joining those two? And then uh, Quinn follows up um, Are RPGs more form following function or function following form? Um, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this and I think we had a play test of Big Grave recently, and I was debriefing with a friend of the show, Nathan DiPoletta, about it. And I came to the conclusion that I had designed the role-playing out of my role-playing game. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, play, I and, played in, or I assume it's the play test that we did, unless you did yeah, another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was a fun little strategy puzzle 
with narrative elements that we had missed the the role playing part. And and the goal wasn't to you know get into characters to see if the system is right. working with strangers, but it's something that I was like, yeah, I have done that. Almost every time I make a game, I design the role-playing out of it and then reincorporate it. And Nathan said that's something that happens a lot to him, too. And it's just... Um, so, like, I think to to address the question, that is me making a mechanic that follows a theme. And then the theme goes away for a little bit. <laughs> so I'm trying to make the G part of the RPG super clicky and fun. Um, which I think I do a lot. Like that's a lot of my process. And then reintroducing those, uh, those R's and those P's back into the RPG. Um, when it, when that is solidified and when I feel comfortable with the action of the game, I think I'm approaching design often in the opposite way where my theme is the biggest aspect of the thing that I'm making which you have like big and rich, big and rich. You have, <laughs> I'm big and rich. Yeah. <laughs> very That's half true present um, themes, right? Like this isn't to say that they aren't part of your design, but my theme guides my design more than anything. So my mechanics mm-hmm. always come later because I am immersing myself aesthetically and visually and like mentally into what it is to exist in this space that the game is trying to evoke. And then from that, I'd say, what do I need or like as a character in this place, what do I need or want to do? And uh, based on that sort of sketch answer, I can then start to formulate mechanics that say like, you know, is this something that should be easy or hard? Is this something that I should be able to do at will? Or is this like something that involves an aspect of randomness? Um, Is that randomness um, malleable? Like, does it help? Yeah. Um, is it something that I as a character can affect or is it something that the player in a a meta way can affect or should, um, how does it look when there's more than one person? Like how do players interact with one another, which is something that I really valued learning from our experience making campfire is like, yeah, on a person's turn in a game, usually the other people kind of check out or like aren't as involved and you want to keep them in it. So how can mechanics affect that interactive quality to the role-playing game? Um, So I can kind of follow this thought train and let the story goals inform the mechanic needs. And then me as a designer who thinks about this stuff way too much and like, understands probability on some level like once i see what it needs to be and what um questions need to be answered i can usually plug in stuff from there and yeah then it kind of all clicks together in that way yeah like i i've i've so much that that 
that inspires me with like I was just literally writing down how do the players interact with each other that's something that is a total blind spot for me always until playtesting and that's why playtesting is such an important part because I find out these things and they're just blind spots and, and I didn't know I had them until they were there because I often will do that thing they did to design Super Mario 64 are you familiar with like the design process of this no. game so uh, first 3D Mario game. Holy shit, this guy has depth. <laughs> um, they created, uh, you know, the polygons for Mario and then a couple, you know, backgrounds for levels. And they just made a single level that was a room with some platforms. And they just tuned the running and jumping until it was perfect. And then they built all the le- levels based on that running and jumping. And I feel like that's a good... Um, analogy for how I'm making things where I've got this big theme I've got these ideas of what the stories are about and then it's it's like okay I got that time to stop worrying about that let's get the jumping right and let's not stop until it feels good and that's what I want it to be and that could be a, a little insight as to why my stuff takes long and I love lots of playtesting is because I look for lots of validation on that because it's just like a designer level goal games don't have to have you know this perfect jump this texture that is meticulous who knows if a player even feels that right um there there could be a game where that has no consideration for this jump room kind of design welcome to jump room theory of game design <laughs> um and it's perfect you know you can just nail it but i have built this process where i can basically algorithmically get my mechanics into a place I'm happy with and that at this point I know I will stay happy with forever which is cool like I have this process where I will just open old games and read the mechanics and be nicely surprised all the time with them and things won't feel stale or strange Um, this subject and our sort of answer to it made me think um that we kind of have our own three questions. We could establish our own place in RPG design lexicons right now. Let's do it. With the 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 absolute classic, what do players do? What do characters do? And what is the third one? I always forget. How do they do them? How do they do the things? Yeah. Um, these, I think, are... Our, I wrote them down while you were talking. I have three principles that we often come into, especially in story game design, but I think this is worth it. I think this extrapolates to RPGs, and I think anyone listening would do well to like ask and answer these questions in their own design. I'm so excited. Um, it's, it's, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you wearing that? Why are you looking at me? <laughs> I think the first question is, how do we as designers inspire immersion whether that is how do you get a person into their character's head how do you get a player to be entrenched in the themes and the setting of your game like what do you what are you doing to facilitate that because i think that's what makes so many of our gaming play experiences rich is our ability to get into it yeah um 
Second question, which I think is important, we just mentioned, how do players interact? Not how do characters interact. This is a at the table, besides me talking on my turn and me, and like, how do we interact? How do we facilitate interaction? And how do we like make this a social, emphasize the social aspect of role playing? And obviously, this is for group games, not a solo game. But um, I'm sure there is a solo equivalent to this question that a solo designer might think of. Yeah, what kind of things am I saying to myself out loud? Um, and the last one, which I think is novel and kind of um, derivative of the others, but what will players remember about playing this game? Mm. I think that is something that I, that is like one of my principal questions that I'm making explicit to myself and I'm like kind of fascinated by that is, yeah, what will, when the game is over, like tomorrow, what is going to be left in that player's mind? You know, what do we physically have and what do we keep with us mentally and emotionally from the game? I find to get- in D&D and fantasy games, it's often just like um, a thing your character did or like, you, you know, you have the... Uh, tell me about your character booths at big bad con and stuff like that are kind of tongue in cheek because that's like how players recall their experiences. Um, it's, it's also tongue in cheek because everyone hates hearing about that. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like describing a dream, but that is novel in that. Like that is the sort of fictional takeaway from a play session usually. And you're not remembering like I rolled a 16 or it took this many rounds of combat or whatever, you know, like you just remember these bullet point moments Um, in a story game. You want to remember the story. Like Mm -hmm. I think fiasco I bring up often as a very memorable game in so far as I can picture while we're playing it, like the movie that's unfolding in my mind and like watching a movie, I can recall a lot of it, like the character interaction, the scenes, the drama, like that's a really cool feeling to take away from playing a game. And I think in a lot of our story games like Campfire um, or 1978 or like these really story driven things that are less challenge oriented, um, that is our goal is like to have at least one really cool surprising story moment that the game kind of facilitates yeah that's going to get people to talk about and remember and like think fondly of the experience i i love these um three questions the how do we inspire immersion how do players interact and what will players remember like what are they going to take away and i think those are a lot more interesting and potentially fruitful questions for the designer with a couple games under their belt or with some designs there because you're starting to get into what is your own taste and how are you moving your taste around to get to other people totally this will help like refine your process and like bring it closer to your design goals by looking at and you know like some of these questions require not just play testing, but like play. So like you said, this is if you have a couple games, you can see how your mechanics and your writing affect the answers to these questions. But, um, 
as you continue to build a catalog and like experiment, you can learn and prioritize which of these sort of questions and answers matter most to you in a design philosophy and like how to make them more or less important to accommodate that goal. Yeah. I, I had a, I did a tweet the other day based on, I'm still playing plasmodics, even though I'm finished the manuscript and moving on to layout now. And I want to try having these two types of play testing the first type, which is like validating my design and inspiring the next piece of design to complete the game with the goal of completing the game. And that's really important to have confidence in the thing that you're making, to see if the thing you're making does what you think it does, and to get other people's feedback on that. To the second way, when that's done, of playing to explore the texture of play and to reinforce, find out the things that people do in the game and like doing, and then build that into the manuscript somehow to inspire and to underline those pieces that you find so interesting about the thing that you've made. So rather than labbing it to see what it should be, you are bringing it to the lab to see what it has become and to highlight those things that you think are most interesting about it. Yeah, I think that rather than what do we do or how do we inspire immersion? That's like, how do we capitalize on the immersion? Like what are the yeah. aspects of this design that are already immersive and how can we uh, bring attention to those? Yeah. Damn. That's some good stuff we talked about. Yeah. If you got this far, we should get an award. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I understand if you didn't, because we did talk about board game bags again. <laughs> hey, no one no one who didn't get here is hearing this right now. So cool. Um, you know what? Let's say goodbye. Adam, where can people find you? Uh my games are at worldchamp.io. I am on Patreon and itch as World Champ Game Co. where uh there's stuff coming out. I think Whenever this comes out, I think my full quarter game ritual will be out now, um, which was a, a Patreon release and like a fun little weird PBTA story game, card game experiment. Um, and I'm on Twitter at WC Game Co. 1978 is, will be over by the time this is out, but uh, pre-orders will be still up at 1978.games. Check it out. Uh, it's a gorgeous game, and you're gonna wish you had it. When when you see people uh, bragging about it, come Halloween, make your Halloween perfect right now. You can take this one simple step to make your Halloween the best it could be. <laughs> um, I'm Will. You can find me online at will.com. I uh, I'm gonna do TikToks. That's oh, kind wow. of yeah. Kind of can't not anymore. Kind of feels like I kind of can't not. Um, so find me on there. Do not know what my handle is. Good luck. Um, otherwise, you can find Plasmodics available for pre-order right now on the Good Luck Press store. Uh, goodluckpress.co. And uh, I have some very cool announcements coming up for the rest of the summer, including the news for what big gray fashion fantasy will be and when it is coming onto kickstarter so 
why don't you go ahead and sign up for the newsletter there. Go on the website, goodluckpress.co, and it will yell at you to get on the newsletter. Okay? Brain emoji, handshake emoji. (laughs) 